Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. We begin the readout tonight with a thing that we really haven't seen in a long, long, long time. A forthright, open, democratic, dare I say progressive defense of government. Now, I am old enough to remember Bill Clinton responding to the rise of Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics by essentially saying, us too, the era of big government is over, but courtesy of the Democrats. And and that was a political calculation that I guess made sense at the time. Reagan was still popular and sainted by Republicans and so-called Reagan Democrats. And when President Obama came along and was faced with this massive economic hole that George W. Bush left the country in, he, too, felt constrained to couch the response in terms of not spending too much money, keeping the economy rescuing stimulus package under a trillion dollars and kind of downplaying anything that looked like big government. And not too much braggadocio, you know, especially from the black president. Oh, God. No, 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 no. Well, enter Joe Biden. Fresh off his primetime address last night, President Biden, Vice President Harris and Democratic members of Congress did a very not usual thing for Democrats. They walked out there and high fived the passage of the American Rescue Plan, a monumental relief package that is of a size and a scale not seen since the days of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs in the 1960s. Now, for comparison, the bill that saved our economy back in 2009 It was also almost completely rejected by Beltway Republicans, just like this one was, was much less than half the size of this $1.9 trillion bill. And this time, Democrats didn't throw in lots of tax cuts for the upper income to try and entice Republicans. This time, most of the benefits, including the direct cash benefits, go to people who aren't rich. The president today accurately described this legislation, the American Rescue Plan, as a paradigm shift. It changes the paradigm. For the first time in a long time, this bill puts working people in this nation first. It's not hyperbole, it's a fact. It's critical to demonstrate that government can function, can function and deliver prosperity, security, and opportunity for the people in this country. Today's Rose Garden ceremony follows President Biden's heartfelt address to the nation last night. And as only he could, Biden reprised his role as consoler in chief, acknowledging the suffering and sacrifice this country has endured over the past year. But last night was more about more than empathy. It was also about hope. The president delivered the welcome news that if everyone does their part, both the government, federal, state and local and all of us, our lives may resemble something closer to normal by January 4th. After this long, hard year, that will make this Independence Day something truly special, where we not only mark our independence as a nation, but we begin to mark our independence from this virus. Meanwhile, Fox News covered a Biden speech that may as well have taken place on Earth, too. 
We don't need to go over the 500,000 dead. We had that moment. Let's talk about the future moving forward. He promises a return to kind of normal, not really, though, but then it threatens to take away the, the cookie if, if the little children don't behave. I found that patronizing and, frankly, embarrassing. This is a free people. This is a free country. How dare you tell us who we can spend the 4th of July with? Fox News viewers were also treated to a live Tucker cam. This is great. So they could watch Tucker's constantly quizzical expression during Biden's speech. (laughs) Now, with the promise of better days ahead, the president is set to capitalize on the string of victories that he's had, hitting the road to tout the benefits of his historic relief package, bypassing the national media to deliver his message directly to the American people. And critically, they're sure to show up on your local news outlets with your traffic and weather together. That is important news coverage for any president. Now, at the moment, however, it does appear that the American people are actually already sold on Biden's relief package. In fact, a recent poll from CNN finds that the American rescue plan is more popular than the president himself. In contrast, that same poll 12 years ago showed that the economic stimulus plan of 2009 was actually less popular than then-President Obama. I'm joined now by Dino Badala, host of The Dino Badala Show on Sirius XM and columnist for MSNBC Daily, Elise Jordan, former aide to President George W. Bush, and Jonathan Allen, NBC News digital senior national political reporter and co-author of Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jonathan, uh, with a promise that we're going to have you back on just to talk about this book, because I am fascinated by uh, I, I know what the book is about. And I'm fascinated by it. But just for right now, you, you've covered both of these White Houses that both included Joe Biden. And, and I am struck by the, what feels to me like a kind of generational change in the way Democrats talk about government, because Democrats, you know, post Reagan were kind of shy about talking about government. He's saying, no, when government works, government does this, this, this and this and gives you checks. Can you just talk about what that evolution has been like, even just for Biden? Absolutely, Joy. Um, for the just for starters, the contrast of wanting a competent government and uh, believing that that's a need for the people is so gigantic. And we heard it last night in the speech from Joe Biden. We see it uh, in the particulars of this bill. Um, for the first time in a long time, someone in Washington and a Democratic president, uh, with the, which I think is a surprise after recent Democratic presidencies, is saying. The government needs to do things for the people and get money to the people when they need money. And I mean, there are so many things in this bill that Joe Biden's going to be able to go around the country and talk about. It's not just the stimulus checks that uh, have been sort of the headliner, uh, the unemployment insurance, of course, uh, during the crisis. There is a fix for labor pensions here that's going to affect roughly three million people um, and make sure that they are made whole uh, for all the work that they did in the past. So. There's a lot for Biden to tout, and it's not about big government. It's about competent government delivering to the public. Yeah, and, you know, at least it strikes me that from what I've been able to see, Republicans really don't have an answer to that. They've gone back to, like, cancel culture stuff and war on Christmas. And even close to Christmas, they're still doing that. But it doesn't feel like they have a substantive rebuke of this. And, uh, and it, But what they're doing is the same thing they did in 2009. All wall together, vote against the bill, say no, 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 and then run out and say it's too much money, it's too much spending. But the spending is on on the American people. It's it's kind of, to me, kind of hard to sell to the American people. Your government should not be spending this money on you when you need it. But it feels like, I guess that's their argument. I don't see how the politics like that are going to work. Do you? 
Well, Joy, Republicans are trying to say, well, this is not a bipartisan bill. You know, we went in to negotiate and there was no room for negotiation. But they came in with a plan that was literally a third of what the eventual bill ended up being. And if you look at what President Biden did, he held his ground. And Democrats, they closed ranks, they stuck together, and they got this through in a show of democratic unity that you don't see at the same time necessarily with Republicans. And so I think that that's really an accomplishment for Democrats that they did get this through. And, you know, for all of the progressive chatter about what's not in the bill, you look at it, it's pretty incredible. It's a huge, huge spending bill, the second largest in American history. And Joe Biden got it through. And it's going to do amazing things to cut child poverty if the projections hold up that economists have been saying. So this really is a very substantial achievement from Joe Biden out of the gates. You know, and, and you know, Dean, it, it's yes, it's a substantial achievement. I mean, looks and from their most, you know, sort of right wing member, Joe Manchin, all the way to Bernie Sanders, they're all like, this is a good idea to spend this much money. The Republican argument that it should have been like, a sixth of this amount of money spent on you. It's still saying the government is only doing the right thing when it's spending money on tax cuts for the rich. If it's spending money on you, sorry, Poppy, that's too much money to spend on you. Like, it doesn't sound like a, like there is a core argument to say the government shouldn't spend this much money on you. You're not worth it. Okay, let me show you. Let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, the sublime would be if, you, if people really thought that way. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Marjorie, I, we call her Margie Q. Um, <laughs> her, her response this was uh, for, to the speech last night. Or, so this isn't even to the bill because her constituents are also going to get those checks. I don't know what she's going to do at reelect time um, to the speech last night from Biden. She called it the most bizarre speech from any president I've ever seen. So, like, she probably wrote that tweet before he even spoke and then said, you know, does Biden even, you know, know about all the open states? Ha <laughs> ha. He's telling us we can't barbecue till July 4th. I've been we've been barbecuing. We've been barbecuing. Like, so it's like they're, 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 the the response to it is just to say something it's fundamentally stupid. John Cornyn jumped in, in two and said, well, why can't we get together? Why do we have to wait till July 4th? He said, you know, if it's going to everybody's going to have vaccines by May 1st. Well, no, he never said everybody's going to be vaccinated by the first. They're acting like they either don't hear what mm-hmm. um, what <laughs> they're acting like they didn't hear it or they're acting like I don't know what they're doing. Do you have any kind of understanding of it? Well, Joy, it's hard to understand because I don't speak stupid. So I don't understand exactly what they're <laughs> trying to say there. I need the translation to English because it doesn't make sense. You know, I just want to point out, you played Joe Biden at the Rose Garden. I want to remind people, President Trump's, the last occupant, his first Rose Garden event was May 2017. Why? For all the Republicans there to cheer because the House GOP had just voted to repeal the ACA and take health insurance away from millions of Americans. Yeah. And they were gleeful. Look, what a contrast. Democrats are gleeful because we're helping millions of Americans. There's could not have a more stark contrast about the DNA, the GOP and the DNA of the, the Democratic Party. And you mentioned as well, look at Ronald Reagan's famous line. The most the nine most terrifying words are I'm here from the government to help. I'm here to help you. And Republicans have lived with that forever. Even Bill Clinton said in 1986, the State of the Union, 1996, yeah. State of the Union, the end of big government's over. Even Al Gore in 2000 bragged how he reduced the yeah. size of jobs when he was running for president. Things have changed. This is a new world we're in where we can usher in policies that help people. And polls show, I don't care what Republicans are voting for, this is bipartisan because at least 40%, if not 50% of Republican base was on board with this. That's real bipartisan. Yes. The GOP elite, the millionaires in Congress, I don't care what they're voting. 
the average American Republican right. and Democrat need the help. Absolutely. Beltway Republicans do not mean see the media cares more about bipartisanship. I'm sorry. The media cares more about bipartisanship than normal Americans. Every American doesn't go, well, did enough Republicans vote for this for this to be a good thing? They have to, am I getting a check? Am I getting my money? That's all people care about. They don't care. Bipartisanship is immaterial to it. Uh, I, but by the way, since we did call out Margie Q, th this is what the Fox crowd said is better. OK, we heard Biden. Let's hear a little mashup of Donald Trump, because this is what she thinks is not bizarre in a speech. Take a listen. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Believe it or not, I watch my words very carefully. There are those that think I'm a very stable genius, okay? In June of 1775, the Continental Congress created a unified army. It took over the airports. It did everything it had to do. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. Supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do. Look at what happened in Syria. Boom, boom, bing. Bing, 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 bong. <laughs> if only he, uh, Biden, had come out and said, boom, boom, bing, 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 bing. Um, you know, Elise, I have to ask you, because you've, you've worked with uh, these with candidates. Back at home, you know, I've worked at local news and I've worked on campaigns. And I can tell you, getting in that five and six o'clock news is everything. Can you just talk about the importance of this tour in terms of actually getting Biden, Harris, et cetera, in front of local news audiences and, and whether that's going to be a big deal for them? Well, Joy, I just couldn't believe it almost. It was so foreign to me when I read that they were going to do a traditional tour promoting their policy in states that maybe were swing states and had Senate elections coming up in 2022. And I thought, wow, this is just a return to traditional politics. And there is a, yes. some rhyme and reason to it and trying to sell your policy and trying to add to your ranks instead of just getting by on division, which is what Donald Trump did. So I think it's a great thing for the Biden administration to fan out and to have to explain and defend and promote their policy. A hundred percent. And I, I've been wait, running away from the word sell because they're not selling it. It's our people already like it. But yes, you have to mm -hmm. keep promoting. You got to promote, 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 promote. It's like being in entertainment. You got to keep promoting. And that is a core part of politics that Democrats have left behind. So glad to see it back. It's needed. Elise Jordan, Jonathan Allen, whose book you guys got to read. Dean is going to be back later for Who Won the Week. And up next, a major development today in the George Floyd case as we mark one year since Breonna Taylor was killed by police in her own home. Plus, Tucker Carlson's manly confidence is clearly threatened by strong women. 
on Dancing with the Stars and never served in the military is now disparaging America's fighting women. You know, Tucker was almost the absolute worst last night. Does his ugly anti-woman military disparaging tirade put him over the top tonight? The big reveal coming up. I don't know if it's coming back. Tomorrow marks one year since Breonna Taylor was shot and killed in her own home by Louisville Metro police officers during a botched no-knock raid. The shooting of the 26-year-old EMT led to a national outcry. But as of today, no charges have been brought against the three officers for Taylor's death. And at the same time, in Minnesota, a jury selection continues in the trial of Derek Chauvin. The former Minneapolis police officer is accused of killing George Floyd by kneeling on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes. While the Floyd family searches for justice against that officer, the city of Minneapolis announced a settlement today with the family for a record $27 million. Attorney Ben Crump, who represents the families of both George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, spoke of how both of these lost lives will always remain connected. The fact that her and George Floyd will be forever linked in history as two people who were taken from us at the hands of of the people who were supposed to protect and serve them during the COVID-19 pandemic, where it seems like everything else in America has shut down except implicit bias and police excessive use of force. Joining me now is Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri. Thank you so much for being here um, this evening, Representative Bush. And, you know, it's, it was striking today to see the size of the settlement in the George Floyd case, $27 million. And you sort of put that against all of these other big settlements, you know, $12 million in the Breonna Taylor case, Walter Scott, $6.5 million, going all the way to $5.9 million for Eric Garner. It seems to me that these states, cities, and municipalities are putting out tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money to solve, rather than trying to actually solve the problem of police killing um, unarmed black people, that they'd rather pay than change. does, Does it strike you that way? You know, it's funny that when we talk about $27 million, which, uh, is one of the largest known settlements when the family would just rather have George, when, you know, when, Children would just rather have their loved one when family members would rather have their loved one. But when we can do the so our state legislatures, especially, will do the work to come up with all of this anti-protester legislation and they will push it hard. And but instead of just fixing the problem so you don't see all of the legislation that says don't kill black people, you see the legislation that says don't be mad that we kill black people. And that's the issue. That's the problem. And so this is why we speak up. This is why we have to stand. It's not, you know, twenty seven million dollars. Is that what his life was worth? You know, we can't put a price tag on this man's life. We can't put a price tag on Brianna's life. When we think about how one person affects another, about how we um, we can as individuals, we can each change someone's lives. You can't put a price tag on that. His daughter deserves to have him right now in twenty seven million dollars. That's a drop in the bucket for a government that can go build a wall like that for a government that can come up with money for Space Force. It's a drop in the bucket. 
Yeah. Let me let me play Brianna Taylor's mom, because, you know, I am reminded, particularly as we are hitting this covid anniversary and her anniversary, right, basically at the same time, she was an essential worker. Uh, she was an EMT. She was in the position to save lives in her job and instead was killed in her own home where she was supposed to be safe at home sleeping. Here's Brianna's mom, Tamika, pa- uh, Tamika Palmer, uh, on what her focus is now. Take a listen. Still to get justice, you know, um, nobody's been held accountable for what happened to her. That's the problem, though. So, um, and until that happens, I guess I'll just continue to fight. You know, and when you think about the fact that the um, the, the the state AG uh, who basically went into the grand jury with an intention, it seemed like an intention to make sure that these officers were never uh, charged with a crime and only wound up charging one for firing a bullet recklessly into the apartment of one white uh, neighbor and not even a black neighbor who also had a bullet in their apartment. It was very selective. He's now in a position of being politically rewarded. You've got Mitch McConnell's folks talking him up as maybe the next United States senator. Like the rewards are real for people who get in the way of justice in these cases. I don't know if you know how do we undo those incentives and switch the incentives to be toward justice for these families. You know, first of all, we keep doing what we're doing. We have activists who are running for office and saying we're going to keep our feet on the ground, but we're also going to go into places where we have the power of a pen and the power of the purse. We have people in place like I saw um, uh, Rep. Attica Scott, you know, of Kentucky today asking A.G. Merrick Garland to fully investigate Breonna Taylor's death. She filed House Resolution 93 um, today that we need people seated that are going to do um, use their position for this type of work. Um, but then also, you know, we have these grassroots organizers out there on the ground. You know, we have to connect the political, the uh, the people in power with the people who are on the ground. And that's what I'm here to do. That's why I'm sitting here as the as the politivist. And I want to say to uh, Tamika Palmer, I don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, but I tell you what, when I pick up this mask and I wear this mask, I wear it because they have to say her name. I wear it because somebody else can be the next person sleeping in their bed that um, that uh, was just in their own home and lose their life. We, t- we forget about Ayanna Stanley Jones. We forget about how so many black women and black girls, you know, and brown women and indigenous women lose their lives. You know, and just people of color, we lose our lives to the police and it's no big deal. So what we're going to do, what we're going to do, Joy, is we're going to keep on fighting and we're going to call out white supremacists every single chance we get. And I I know you do that. And I I do want to ask you before I let you go, you have a piece of legislation that you're working on, because the other side of this is that when people of color, particularly black folks, but, you know, people of color, as you said, indigenous, black, brown, et cetera, wind up incarcerated in so many states, they lose everything, including their right to vote. So we have on both sides, you either get if you make it through the arrest, if you survive the encounter in the first place with police, you then might end up disenfranchised in an era when people are already being disenfranchised. Tell us about your bill. Absolutely. So our right to vote, of course, is the foundation of our democracy. Um, so for the first time ever, 
um, the House took up a vote on my amendment, which was to restore the voting rights to our community members who are serving sentences for felony convictions. So our amendment didn't pass, but 97 Democrats voted with us and 13 of them were chairs of House committees. So that's huge. We got to dismantle white supremacy in all its forms. So this is a start because it's about humanity. We, we cannot deny people of their humanity. That's not justice. We can't continue to deprive our citizens of full rights of citizenship. That is not justice. Passing this pro-democracy legislation dismantles Jim Crow era anti-democratic practices. That's the justice. Yeah, absolutely. Representative Cori Bush, you are always outspoken. Um, I want one of the copy of those masks. I got to figure out from you how to get one of those masks. That, that, that is a really great thing that you have there. So thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. And cheers. And up next, what's being done to address an alarming spike in violence directed against Asian Americans? President Biden condemned these attacks in his national address last night. Will that be enough? Stay with us. One of the reassuring and, quite frankly, surreal aspects of President Biden's primetime address last night was his stark contrast to the former guy. One example being Biden's rebuke of the rise of racially motivated attacks against Asian Americans, a surge many blame on his predecessor's racist rhetoric about the coronavirus. Vicious hate crimes against Asian Americans who've been attacked, harassed, blamed and scapegoated. At this very moment... So many of them are fellow Americans. They're on the front lines of this pandemic trying to save lives. And still, still, they're forced to live in fear for their lives just walking down streets in America. It's wrong, it's un-American, and it must stop. Well, members of Congress are now introducing legislation to combat these anti-Asian hate crimes, which according to one report by California State University, rose by 150% last year. Joining me now, two members of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii and Congresswoman Grace Meng of New York. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to start with you, Senator Hirono, because I, I saw your statement uh, that you made. I, I want to say it was earlier this week or last week where you also came out very forthrightly and talked about What's going on? Uh, looking one case, one of our great producers found um, a case of an 83-year-old named Nancy Ta who was attacked in Westchester on Tuesday. She says her assailant came up to her, cocked his head back, and spit in her face. Um, she closed her eyes, and that's when he punched her in the nose. She fell to the ground, hit the back of her head, and was knocked unconscious. She didn't want to go to the hospital, though. Ms. Ta didn't want to go to the hospital because she couldn't afford the medical bills, which is, a, you know, a total sort of connection between the, the economic, um, you know, sort of perils people are in and the, the physical peril Asian Americans are in. This this woman, Miss Nancy, is 83. Yes. This is horrible. I am shocked that it's been a year and nothing's been done. I'm shocked, too. And part of why nothing has been done is because we had the previous guy who called talked about the China virus and the Kung flu and all that created an environment where this kind of these kinds of vicious attacks can happen. And what a contrast with the new president, President Biden, calling out these kinds of crimes, saying it's wrong, it's un-American, and must stop. And it's great to be on your program with my good friend, Congresswoman Grace Meng, who is a leader on these issues. Uh, well, yes, and uh, the leader on this legislation, too, because I know that you're co-sponsoring the Senate version, but Congresswoman Meng, I want you to go ahead and describe, describe your legislation and what would it do? 
Sure. First, thanks, Joy, for having me. And it's always a pleasure and an honor to be with uh, Senator Hirono, our trailblazer. Um, look, this legislation really would help so many people in our community, and not just Asian Americans, actually, anyone who has ever encountered a hateful incident or a hate crime. It asks for dedicated personnel and resources at the Department of Justice and allows for more cooperation and helping local law enforcement, local community organizations better educate our everyday community members so they understand why it's important to even report these types of incidents. And, you know, um, Senator, you know, Reverend Sharpton was on um, earlier this evening with Nicole Wallace, and he made the point that we have to, like, take this on in all of our communities and make this an effort that's joint across communities. You know, there's some incidences where the attackers are African-American. There are incidences where the attackers are white. It can be almost anyone. And so how can we be helpful in, in, you know, in other communities that want to be allied with the Asian-American community? What things can we do? I was really gratified uh, to hear Al Sharpton. I watched that segment also. And he said, all of us, regardless of our own ethnic backgrounds, we all need to speak out. Uh, against these kinds of targeting of any group. Uh, and so that's what we all have to do. And of course, what's really important is leadership at the top, President Biden yeah. calling this out and putting together a, a, a process whereby these crimes can be reported. And by the way, there is underreporting because sometimes the police departments don't report a hate crime as a hate crime. And that's why it's important to have somebody designated at the DOJ to review these kinds of crimes so that they can be prevented and prosecuted. You know, and Congresswoman, that's a really good point, right? We need more reporting. But also, I would have assumed some people are afraid to report it, right? Because people are not trying to stand out. I mean, in an era where people are, you know, where you had a previous president blaming and naming the virus that just locked everyone up after China, even if people are not Chinese, you know, people are not necessarily savvy about who is who. I know this happened when Muslims were being attacked. Sikhs were being attacked, too. So it's like anyone who people think they can group into this group are, are... Is there a worry that it's way underreported? Definitely. We've heard about over 3,000 incidents being reported within the last year. But we uh, likely know that the incidents, the number of incidents um, are much higher. Um, And it's not always easy to report, right? If you're a senior citizen, if you have obstacles uh, with the English language, if you're on your way to work, It's just not easy and convenient necessarily to report these incidents. And I also want to um, piggyback off of what Senator Hirono said earlier and what um, Reverend Sharpton said. Uh, A local black activist at uh, a rally to speak up for Asian Americans uh, once said that the answer to racism is never more racism. It is solidarity. So we want to make sure that our communities, whether it's Black Lives Matters, to uh, violence against Asian Americans, that we are standing up and speaking up for each other. A hundred percent. It's the allyship that's really going to get us through. I have to stick with you for just one moment, Congresswoman, because, of course, there is another story, the story in New York uh, about the governor. Uh, There are lots of calls for him to resign. Are you among those who believe that he should resign or do you think the process should play out that's happening there now, uh, meaning the let the um, legal authorities and the AG investigate? 
I think that the number of stories and the number of incidents that have come out in recent days and weeks make it really difficult for the governor to do his job. I sympathize with the women who have come come out and share their heartbreaking stories. Um, I did issue a statement today asking for his resignation. Yeah. And now and thereby you see the difference between the way Democrats respond to other Democrats who have these kind of issues and the way the other party responded to Trump for four years, including a rape allegation. Very different parties, everyone. This is the difference. Senator Maisie Hirono, Congresswoman Grace Meng. I love the sisterhood between you two. I love that you guys were bigging each other up in the beginning. Sisterhood is powerful. Love it. Thank you very much. Appreciate you both. Thanks, and up next. Uh, thank you. And up next. You waited for it. It's tonight's absolute worst. Now, tonight's winner has been flirting with the title for a while now. And now he's finally made it to the top. Well done. Uh, the top is actually the bottom, by the way. You are without a doubt the absolute worst. Stick around. Bless Tucker Carlson's little heart. The poor guy just can't help getting rejected. First, his alma mater, Trinity College, didn't seem to want him until his boarding school headmaster reportedly greased some wheels. Did I mention Tucker happened to be dating the headmaster's daughter? Then there was the time he tried to get into the CIA, but his application was denied. So he put his trust fund talents to use and pursued a career in journalism instead. Complete with his signature intellectual look, the bow tie. Spoiler alert, cosplaying a smart guy doesn't actually make you one. And of course, who can forget the savage dragging he got from Jon Stewart back in 2004 during his crossfire days on CNN, which is actually probably the closest he's ever come to combat, bringing us to why he's tonight's absolute worst. See, good old Tucker Carlson, Swanson, frozen food heir and boarding school elitist is now spending his nights hanging out under his little troll bridge at Fox News, attacking women in the military. So we've got new hairstyles and maternity flight suits. Pregnant women are going to fight our wars. It's a mockery of the U.S. military. Tucker, who's probably spent more time playing lacrosse with his buddies Chip and Todd than serving this country, has been obliterated by everyone from Pentagon top brass to veterans groups for that nonsense. No, sir. This is the U.S. military. The men and women who defend your freedom, something a prep school boy like you will never understand. Then there's Senator Tammy Duckworth, an Army veteran who lost both her legs in combat in Iraq and is also the first sitting senator to give birth while in office. She tweeted, F. Tucker Carlson. While he was practicing his two-step, America's female warriors were hunting down al-Qaeda and proving the strength of America's women. Happy belated International Women's Day to everyone but Tucker, who even I can dance better than. Bloop. And the Pentagon quite literally smited him for dissing diversity in the ranks. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said the Defense Department won't be taking advice from a talk show host. Well, that one really messed with his soul, like Ether. Well, if he has a soul. Because last night he went on his little show and whined about how he, Tucker, is the victim. 
If the Pentagon can show that pregnant pilots are the best, we will be the first to demand an entire Air Force of pregnant pilots. Since when does the Pentagon declare war on a domestic news operation? Can't remember that ever happening. He should probably put the bow tie on. He looks smarter and sounds smarter. I'm sure. I'm now joined by Pennsylvania Congresswoman and retired Air Force Captain Chrissy Houlihan. Uh, you know, I have no real questions for you. I just want to let you talk. Uh, your thoughts on Tucker. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. I am so grateful to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you because your story is a little bit even more rich and more multidimensional than you think it is. Because I, in fact, did go to that very same high school that Tucker Carlson went to. It is a very nice prep school, an excellent education. And I was fortunate to go there on a scholarship that was given for military children. And so I uh, and he, we took very different paths when we graduated. It, you outlined his path. And my path was to join alongside my family members as a third generation member of the military in the Air Force of all uh, ironies of ironies. And I served and now I'm serving in Congress. And I think the divergent paths that each of us have taken, I, I largely have tried to stay away from a conversation about our similar backgrounds and heritages. I've largely tried to ignore Mr. Carlson because I don't think he deserves the oxygen that we're giving him. But with these conversations and with this statement, these reprehensible references to the women who serve, who protect, who defend, who fight and in many cases die for his right to have that pulpit, to talk that in that toxic and uh, divisive way, it's just beyond the pale. And I, I had to come out and, and decry that. I had to come out and say to Mr. Carlson that he owes the women in the military, the women who've worn the uniform and are currently wearing the uniform, some of whom are in my family, an apology. He owes the men who are wearing uniforms apologies as well, and the families who serve alongside those men and women. Uh, and we need to just stop it, stop the outlandishness. And and he is the absolute worst. No, I mean, and you're. I love that you brought that out about the high school thing because you know, I, having been a, a person who went to Harvard on scholarship and sort of faced occasionally the disdain of the rich folks who got in there because of their last names thinking I got in there because of affirmative action only and affirmative action found me because I was smart. Right. And, and for you as a as a as a young woman to be able to be in that elite high school because there was a scholarship and there was an opportunity for your family that is serving this country. I doubt that the Swanson Food Air dude even understands that kind of an upbringing or that kind of service. I think that there are, it was an amazing education that I was provided and, and something that I don't take for granted. I don't believe that I would be here talking to you now had I not had that opportunity. And I'm really grateful for the scholarship that, that provided that opportunity and for the people who taught me and, the, and my colleagues and classmates there. Yeah. But you're right. I think that this is a, there's a special place uh, reserved for people who have never walked a day in the footsteps of a soldier, a sailor, an airman, or a guardian uh, to have this sort of uh, repugnant, re re repulsive response to the people who are allowing him to have the freedoms that allow him to speak in this way. You know, what's really amazing is that to me, you know, 
Tucker loves to pick on people that he thinks he can bully. And women frequently wind up in that category. But to me, a woman who can fly a, you know, jet aircraft and be in combat and do all this while also being pregnant, having been pregnant three times, and it's a lot on your body. The fact that these are super women. These are like the best, most fit most prepared, most lethal women in America. And the, the, the fact that anyone could disparage the military, which trains very well the people that are in it, people in it are not slouches. How do you feel just as a person who's had that training and had that experience to hear him doubt that the great men and women of our military can train a woman who can also be a mother and be a combatant? Yeah, and let's talk about that for a minute, because what's really interesting is only 1% of our American population ever serves or wears a uniform, and only 20% of that 1% right now are women. And we are, as we know, 51% of the population, and women are the most rapidly growing population in the military, increasingly more and more. We expect somewhere around 30% will shortly within the next 10 years be part of the military, and I hope at some point we reach parity. But you're absolutely right. That's a pretty elite group of people with a pretty special set of training and a real commitment to this nation. Uh, and it, it really, he's, he's barking up the wrong tree in terms of who he's picking on when he decides to pick on the people, the 1% of the population and the 20% of that 1% who is, is allowing him the opportunity to, to enjoy the freedoms of this country. Yeah, indeed. We just saw two women whose promotions to um, four-star general were actually delayed and their promotions within the military were delayed because of the previous president's misogyny and the fear among members of the Pentagon that it, he would block it if he knew that anyone other than white men were getting these jobs and getting these opportunities. What do you, the situation that we're facing now is, are you worried that our, that the advancement of women now depends on the character and attitude of the person in the White House rather than on their merit? No, and, and I, it, I, I worry that that is the case, and I worry that we've seen that at, at this highest rank. This is a three- to four-star general promotion, the story that you're talking about, and that definitely is an indicator that there certainly are things like that going on down ranks in terms of promotion opportunities and that kind of thing. But I do believe that we're heading in the right direction, and I do believe this leadership right now, including, of course, the White House and the commander-in-chief, uh, have the values and understand the importance of elevating women. Uh, I do believe that the Congress also understands that. I helped to found something called the Service Women and Women's Veterans Caucus, which is 50 members strong, bipartisan, both men and women. And it's the first caucus of its kind in Congress that is focusing on this issue specifically. Uh, we really need to make sure yeah. that we have all hands on deck. And that means the Congress, uh, the White House, and the DOD and our senior ranking officers to make sure that we're calling it, calling out people like Mr. Carlson and his his uh, rhetoric, and we're making sure that we're encouraging women rather than discouraging women to join the ranks. Yeah, well, you don't have to call him Mr. Carlson. He hasn't earned it. Just call him Tucker. The Congresswoman <laughs> is sticking around, uh, and I can say this because we're on cable. Women who serve are badass. Uh, so this badass <laughs> woman is going to stick around to play Who Won the Week, and that is next after the break. Don't go anywhere. Well, everyone, we did it. We finally made it to Friday, ah, which means it's time to play our favorite game. Who won the week? Back with me are Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan and Dean Obadala. I'm going to pressure the Congresswoman because she's an elected official and also an Air Force veteran. I think she can handle it. I'm going to make you go first, Congresswoman. 
who won the week? So I can definitely handle the pressure. And I believe that since you said the word badass, I can use the word badass. I believe that a woman named Chris and her daughter and their pound puppy in Kennett Square, which is in my community, won the week because she is uh, having been unemployed since June with this pandemic is going to be receiving the stimulus check as a result of the American Rescue Plan. And she is able and excited to pay off some of her bills. And so it's this is a tribute to her. She's the winner of the week and all of the badass women like her who are managing this really very difficult time. And so with that, I'll turn it back Absolutely. over to you. Oh, turn, thank you. For, look, she even did a toss. I think we're going to have to hire her as a host <laughs> on the show. The pressure's now on you, Dean. You are also now at risk of losing your radio show to the congresswoman, who's actually quite good at this TV thing. So the pressure is high. Well, Do you have well, an answer that can beat the one you just heard of who won the week? I don't, well, I don't like the contest angle to the whole thing, Joy. Can't we just be friends about this? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we can. Here's, first of all, <laughs> women who serve should win every week. You have more valor and courage yes. in 10 seconds than Tucker Carlson has in his entire life. But I will say this. I think Joseph R. Biden was the winner of the week with the COVID relief bill getting through. His great speech last night that so inspired unity. I wanted to hug Sean Hannity after it was over. And I don't like <laughs> Sean Hannity at all. <laughs> so, but his speech gave us truth. Facts and hope. The only way the speech could have been better is if he announced that we had just arrested Donald Trump. That's the only way it could have been a better speech. Besides that, uh, that, that I say Joseph Biden, but I think you know, the people that the congresswoman just point, pointed out actually probably wins. Actually, I'll have to defer and concede. Every week, like every week. Well, OK, well, I, that, these are both excellent answers, and I think they're both actually correct. But my winner of the week is someone I think everyone can relate to. My winners of the week are grandparents. Because the vaccinations are rolling out across the country, particularly people over 60 are getting vaccinated at such a great rate, they can see their grandkids. That is a win for these grandparents. And that also happens to be tonight's moment of joy. Here it is. When I saw the new guidelines, I was very excited because I have been dying to hug my grandkids. I love him. I'm sure every grandparent has felt this way. It's like we've been out there in oblivion, just so separated from the people we love. Grampy and Grandma win the week. Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan, Dean Obadala. Thank you very much, my friends. That is tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.